Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open your Bibles up this morning to Exodus chapter 8. We're continuing our series in the plagues this morning. And as you open up there, you have probably heard a question that is somewhere along this line. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have either had this question or you have heard other people ask this question of you. And, And that question is this. What sets Christianity apart? Like what makes Christianity so special that it would be so uh, so different or to, to be considered apart from the other religions of the world? Why, why is Christianity special? And you know what? There are a potential host of answers that you could give to that question. But there's one particular answer that I want to focus on today. The Judeo-Christian religion. Uh, it uniquely emphasizes the heart. Like there is something unique about our religion that is unusual amongst world religions. Uh, it uniquely emphasizes the heart. In fact, you think of Judaism, particularly against its context of ancient Near Eastern religions, there is this particular emphasis in Judaism on the heart. And so Alliance Bible Church this morning, the thing that I want us to understand with clarity as we dig into this passage is that our God is uniquely concerned about the heart. Alliance Bible Church, our God is uniquely concerned about our hearts. You know, the God of the Bible, he's so vastly different from any other kind of God in that he focuses on the heart. And, and the heart is the seat of the emotion. This is, the, this is the, the thing that makes decisions for you when you would like to think that logic is making decisions for you. And you know what? God is in this process, like what we understand from Scripture is God is in this process of constantly evaluating the heart. So uh, the first and greatest commandment. What is the first and greatest commandment? Jesus tells it about tells us about it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Like, why is that like the first and most important thing that you would consider is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the Ten Commandments even give us a clue into this that God is constantly evaluating the heart because uh, they they are about not just action, but they are also about thought and intent. So uh, this is why commandment number 10 says you shall not covet. And that helps us to understand the rest of the Ten Commandments. It, it helps us to understand that God is actually concerned at some level about our motives, about what's going on inside of us, about our hearts. Okay, so we're going to like, let's just push pause on that thought for a second. Now, don't literally push pause on the video, but but let's just hold that thought where it is. And uh, let's talk about the idea of change for a second. So change, change is uh, just uh, very broadly defined. It's a decision to do something differently than you did it before. So uh, all the time, God is calling us to change. This is a very scriptural concept. It's something that we're familiar with. Uh, it, It talks about the implication that we would repent. Literally, we would turn around, that we would change. You know what? So so when I preach, uh, one of the things that I'm asking all the time when I prepare a sermon is how does God want his people to change? As a result of hearing this scripture passage, like when I, when we as a, as a church meet with this scripture passage, how, how might he want us to change? And, you know, even, even Grace, uh, you know, Grace, when she has given announcements, um, 
And if you don't know Grace, you guys will hopefully get to meet her when when we uh, when we get back to gathering in person. But but Grace does our announcements, and every time after she does announcements and she she prays for the rest of the service, the thing that she consistently prays, which I love, and I'm actually sorry, like I've been forgetting to pray it, uh, even as we've been doing online church. But I love this prayer. Her prayer is, God, would you would you let us don't let us leave this place the same way that we came in. Like she prays that all the time because she knows that there's this focus on change. When we meet with God, something happens to us. Our hearts change. There's something about us that is deeply connected to God. And in being connected to God, we have this opportunity to meet him and change. And so so there's a negative principle that we can draw from this. And that principle is this. And this is where we bring the heart and change together. A refusal to change is the result of a hard heart. A refusal to change is the result of a hard heart. So I want you to imagine a scenario with me for a second. Imagine that there is a government administration that has to figure out how to lead through a pandemic. I'm sure this is not too difficult for you to imagine, but uh, just uh, posit this idea for me with me for a second. Now, I want you to imagine that a year later, another pandemic hits. And then a year after that, another pandemic hits. And then a year after that, another pandemic hits. And then each one, in each pandemic, you get mass amounts of people who get infected and massive amounts of people who die as a result of those infections. And life is massively disrupted in each pandemic. And I want you to imagine that that government that first administration, they're so convinced that their response to the first pandemic was the, the best response. And so they don't change anything about how they respond to the later ones. They don't evaluate their response as time goes on because they're so convinced that they were right the first time. Even They may even have advisors from other countries who, who over the course of these pandemics seem to be having better responses. Uh, these might even seem to be proven strategies, but that, that government still doesn't change. So you know what? Sure, the, the pandemics themselves are massive problems. Nobody is to blame for those pandemics, but but, but those pandemics get exacerbated. The problem of those ex- pandemics get exacerbated because you now have a, a, a government that through four different pandemics has refused to change. And you know what, this idea of a refusal to change, now that I'm not, I'm not, there's no political conjecture here. There's nothing about me making a commentary on how any particular government is handling things. I just want you to imagine that this is what has happened that a government has gone for pandemics with no change, that refusal to change is marked by pride. That refusal to change is marked by stubbornness. That refusal to change is marked by a hard heart. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we read this passage in in Exodus, as we look at these plagues, is we're actually going to watch the development of a hard heart. And in watching that development, we're going to really seek to ask the question, what is it that makes up a hard heart? So context, we're in Exodus chapter 8. 
And uh, in Exodus chapter 8, we, wa- we watched last week, God is in this process with the plagues of systematically slaying the Egyptian idols. So, so just a review real quick. We talked about idolatry last week. We introduced that concept. Idolatry is the process by which you make anything an ultimate thing. So, uh, so for Egypt, it was their rivers, their crops, their economy, their livestock, all of these things they were good things, but Egypt turned them into ultimate things. Egypt worshipped these things. And here's, here's the thing about idolatry. Idolatry crushes the soul. So idolatry, you know what? It takes everything from you while simultaneously blinding you to the truth. It actually, idolatry leaves you satisfied enough to keep you coming back to it but keeps you from acknowledging what is actually true. So uh, so in each plague, God is going through this process of showing the Egyptian people how utterly powerless their idols are when they stand toe-to-toe with him. So so uh, God has given us this amazing gift in the book of Exodus because uh, when we read Exodus, we don't just get to see events that take place one after another, but, but we actually get God's perspective into the story. And, and something about what God is doing, he's actually intentionally drawing our attention to Pharaoh. He's helping us to see the personal impact that this has on Pharaoh and actually what he's doing. We get to see something that not even Moses gets to see in the moment. Not even the people of Israel get to see. We get to see this special perspective where we actually see what's happening inside of Pharaoh's heart. And this is an amazing gift because as we look at the example of Pharaoh, we actually get to discover what it is that makes for a hard heart. Because by the end of our passage today, Pharaoh will have gone through four plagues and changed absolutely nothing. And so in this process, we actually get to watch his heart get harder and harder and harder. So we are in Exodus chapter 8, and in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. So there are two things that uh, we should notice. First of all, the Nile is the source of this plague. So, so that is important because last week the first plague actually happened to the Nile. The Nile got turned to blood. But then the source of the second plague, the frogs are actually coming up out of the Nile, making the Nile even a, a further hindrance on Egypt. So that's one thing to notice. Uh, number two is that there is something very personal happening between Yahweh, the I Am, the Lord, and Pharaoh. There's something very personal happening between them here, and that is emphasized by this. Notice, uh, when when God talks about this plague happening, he talks about it happening to Pharaoh first. Like the first person affected by the plague from God's point of view is this. It says, these frogs are going to come up into your house, Pharaoh. They're going to come into your bedroom, Pharaoh. They're going to be on your bed, Pharaoh. Like he, he is kind of taking this very personal approach to, to addressing Pharaoh with these plagues. So why does he pick frogs? 
Why are frogs the particular plague? Well, uh, there is an Egyptian god named Hecate, and Hecate is, uh, she has a frog's head, and her job is to breathe life into creation. This is how the kind of Egyptians structured uh, their gods, and so Hecate has this responsibility. And uh, she also has a very practical responsibility. Hecate's job, she is supposed to control the frog population. Like this is something that she is supposed to do. And, and so even crocodiles, crocodiles existed actually as they were seen as a blessing from Hecate because they ate the frogs. They kept the frogs under control. And this plague, it actually, it makes it, makes it impossible to do anything in Egypt like to do work, to, to eat food, to, to, to fix things in their ovens, to sleep on their beds. Life is seriously inconvenienced by this God, and, and it displays that Hecate is apparently failing at her job. Like she's not doing a, a, an incredible job at this point. If like the thing that she exists for in maintaining creation is to control the frog population, then she's not doing her job very well. And so the, the magicians that we saw last week, they, they actually come back into the story in verse 7. And this is what happens. Verse 7 says, But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So these guys, uh, I mean, how could you do anything more useless? Like there are frogs. The frogs are creating a problem. So you know what? Oh, I have an idea. Like let's make more frogs and have more frogs come on the land. And, uh, and so that doesn't actually fix the problem, but what's happening? Why do they do this? The reason they do this is because these miracles that they perform are to say in some manner, hey, we don't have to acknowledge your God yet because our gods can do the same thing that your God can do. So, so that's why we see them still performing these miracles even, they can't, even though they can't fix what uh, Moses and Aaron did. But Pharaoh still sees a massive problem with this. And so, so verse eight, this is what happens. Uh, Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron. He said, hey, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So verse nine says, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you, for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Verse 10, and he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So I don't want you to miss what is happening here. Pharaoh, actually, Moses gives Pharaoh the chance to pick the specific time that the frogs will be done away with. So when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, hey, I'm going to leave it up to you. Be pleased to tell me when you would like me to remove these frogs. Tell me when you want them to be gone, and they will be gone. And there's a reason Moses is doing it like this, because he wants Pharaoh to know that there will be no question as to who did this or how it happened. Like, it will be obvious to Pharaoh. So if, if Moses... Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh, tell me when you want it to happen. And if Pharaoh says tomorrow, then Moses is going to pray to God and, and Yahweh is going to make sure that it happens tomorrow at the exact time that Pharaoh picks because it needs to be obvious that, that Yahweh is actually the one in control of this situation. 
So uh, the second thing to to notice here is that Yahweh is, you know, he's always up to something bigger. Our God is always up to something bigger. This is not just a plan for Israel, but it's a plan for Pharaoh. It's a plan for for Egypt, and it's a plan to to show Pharaoh that that even he as this leader of this incredibly strong nation with with their their gods, like the source of their strength comes from their gods. He's showing Pharaoh that that he's the stronger God. Remember what it says. It says, so that you may know there is no one like our God. He wants, he wants Pharaoh to know the strength of the Lord. And so he's trying to get this message across. You know what? He's trying to say, you know, when Pharaoh acknowledges this message, Actually, what happens is that this message gets transferred to throughout the known world. So you remember us talking about Egypt. Egypt is very well connected to the rest of the world at this point through trade and, and various means. And so, so when Pharaoh comes to acknowledge that Yahweh is the stronger God, that Yahweh is doing these things, when he actually comes to say this and admit it, uh, that news travels throughout all the known world. And it's essentially news that says our gods, the source of our strength, they can't compete with the God of this slave people. So, so we see this, this message get communicated clearly in Joshua, actually. Joshua 2, 9 and 10 says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for... We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Like because of what the Lord does in Egypt, because of what happens to Pharaoh, news travels throughout all the land of just how strong the Lord is. So, uh, so there's there's something bigger happening here besides just what's happening for Israel. There's something about God revealing Himself to other people and and specifically in this instance we see what he's that he's revealing himself to Pharaoh. So verse 12 it says so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses the frogs died out in the houses the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. So this idol uh, this Hecate, this frog god, this god who's supposed to control things, has failed in that uh, there is now a loss of control in Egypt. And so when Pharaoh and Egypt, they're trusting in this god for control and that god fails, there is now an opportunity for them to change. There's an opportunity for them to do something different. Uh, and it's even interesting. You watch the Egyptians. They gather these frogs together in heaps, and it says the land stank. If you remember last week, we looked at the Nile River when it filled with blood, and it said that the Nile River became stink to the Egyptians. And the whole point of that is that these gods that the Egyptians have become have come to rely upon, they are now going to stink for the Egyptians. They're going to become a major problem for the Egyptians. And, and I want you to see the principle that's being drawn out here. You will ultimately demonize that which you idolize. You will ultimately come to demonize that which you turn into an idol. So you know what? Here's some examples. If you are dependent on a person or a person in a particular position to do something for you or to perform in some way and that person fails you, 
you know what, that person, you will be very tempted to turn them into an enemy. How about uh, if you expect something, maybe something major for yourself, maybe you become very self-reliant or self-trusting, you have high expectations for what you might do, and then you fail at those expectations, well, that can very quickly turn into self-loathing. How about endless pursuit of a career? You trust a career to be everything for you, and then and then you actually get into that career, and it misses some expectations for you, and then and then it, it turns out you you t- you turn the whole industry into this thing that frustrates you, and the reason is is because when you put all of your hope into someone or something, and those things fail you, you start to see those things in an incredibly negative light, even if they're good things. You know what? Yahweh, he is not opposed. Our God, our Lord is not opposed to letting your idols become stink to you. Now, why would he do that? Is it because he hates you? No. Is it because he wants you to be miserable? No, it's not any of that. It's because he wants you to see him for who he is. Like that's that's what was happening with Pharaoh. He, he said he wants Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will know that there is no one like me. So it's not because he hates you. It's not because he wants you to be miserable. It's because he wants you to see him for who he is. And that's what he's striving for here with Pharaoh. So I I don't want us to miss this, this breaking down of idols. This is a grace of God. Like this is God's goodness toward us. This is something good that God does for us. Like to actually observe your idol being broken down in front of you. Yes, it hurts, but it is a grace because it's an opportunity to pay attention. So, you know what? God's voice, it can be heard most clearly when all of the other distractions and all of the other pursuits are removed. So the question that you have to answer is how are you going to respond in that moment? Our main point this morning that we're going to keep coming back to is this. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's a unique opportunity when he is breaking down idols for his voice, for you to pay special attention, for you to actually change. And so when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Verse 15 tells us what Pharaoh did. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So you know what's really interesting here? Pharaoh, when he got what he wanted from Yahweh, which was for the frogs to stop, he did not care about honoring his word. He did not care about integrity. He did not care uh, about actually like doing good. None of that mattered. Pharaoh got what he wanted, and because he got what he wanted, there was a respite. He decided not to respond to Yahweh. He hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them. So in this moment, actually, Pharaoh ignores what is obvious because there is no question of Yahweh's power. There's no question of Yahweh's authority. He has all the control in this situation, even when Pharaoh's gods were supposed to have control. But he made a decision to do nothing with this. He actually refused to change. And then another plague comes. So plague number three is lice. So verse 16 of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth 
so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. So so gnats, uh, these words, gnats and flies, these different words, it's hard to get a, a translation that accurately describes what exactly is happening. But most people believe that what's being referred to here are head lice, uh, that they become like uh, numerous throughout the land of Egypt. And so uh, in this plague, there is yet another Egyptian god represented. So the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth actually, it, it describes, uh, it, it refers to the Egyptian god Geb. Uh, he is the god of the earth. He is the god who would allow crops to grow. And so, so you know what? The Egyptians, they would perform specific rituals to this god, Geb, and Geb would provide the crops. And this, is, this becomes a very transactional relationship between the Egyptians and this god. And what's funny is that, that, that these gods, they have multiple domains, right? And so while he is the, the god of the earth, he's also the god of snakes. So remember what happened last week. We, we watched Moses and Aaron go in, and they met with the Egyptians, and then uh, Aaron had his staff, and the Egyptians had their staves, and, and we watched uh, them all cast their staves down, and they, they became snakes. And then Aaron's snake ate their snakes, right? That's what happened. And, and so there's this moment with the Egyptians, and now Aaron, he's using that same staff that became a snake to kill the god of snakes, uh, when he sets his staff on the dust of the earth, this becomes very significant. And so, so it's no accident then in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So the magicians realize uh, their power is gone. Because the God who swallowed up their God has now proven to them exactly who he is by taking away their power. So, so they go to perform the same rituals that they had always been performing before in order to get something out of their idol. And their idol decides to stay home. Like their idol can't come through with his end of the transaction. And Pharaoh's magicians in this moment become powerless. So the idols fail Egypt, Egypt yet again, showing that Egypt and Pharaoh, they're being stripped of power. And here's an opportunity, another opportunity when the idol fails for them to change. So, so before we dig into that opportunity to change, I just want to ask the question, like, why, why is it that we choose idolatry? Like what draws us to idolatry? What is so appealing about it for human beings? And I think the answer lies in this. It's because we can tame it, because we can understand it in some way, because we can actually control it. But our God, like we can't tame our God. We can't fully understand our God. We can't control our God. But the reason that the things we make ultimate, like the reason that we make them ultimate is because we have had figured out how, how to make these things work for us, like how to make them work for our benefit. We figured out how the transaction process works, how we can give something to get something from these things. So, you know, like uh, with, with alcohol or drugs or something like that, it, you know what? I can give up. If I give up another piece of my health. I'll engage in this transaction where I get another high or some other sort of feeling from this substance. You know, if I, if I give up a relationship over here, I know that I can climb the career success ladder over here. 
If I give up more of my time over here, I know that I can stay entertained and comfortable for longer over here, right? There's this transaction process that we engage when in with our idols where we give a little bit and they give us something back. And we can really, we understand how we can control things in that realm. And you know what? These magicians, they had devoted their lives to understanding these transactions and how these transactions worked. And Yahweh speaks in this moment. He strips away their power. He takes it away in an instant. And these magicians, they actually get the message. They get the message coming from Yahweh, which is this. Your transactions, they won't work anymore. And so uh, back to our main point this morning. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But Pharaoh's response, verse 19, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, I imagine Pharaoh in his emotional world getting very angry at this point, especially if these transactions with his idols gave him some sense of control or sense of power. That control is being stripped away from it, and he's watching, he's observing that he actually is having less and less control over what's happening. His idols are failing him, and still he doesn't change. So God sends yet another plague. The fourth one, stinging flies. Verse 20 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 21, Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servant and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. So these flies, they represent yet another Egyptian god, the Egyptian god Kepri. Uh, and there's an interesting pattern here because uh, what's, what's really interesting is that God is not just defeating the things that represent the gods. Like he's not just defeating the Nile, he's not just de defeating frogs, but he's actually using these things that represent the gods as tools against Egypt. Like he's actually making these things go against Egypt to make their life more difficult, to make their lives more challenging. So verse 28, we watch the response to this. Pharaoh said, he's tired of it. He said, I will let you Go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. So he actually, he recognizes that Moses has some significant power, that, that when Moses actually talks to the Lord, the Lord does stuff. And so he says, plead for me. So Moses said, okay, behold, I'm going to go out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So, so Moses says, you know, Pharaoh, remember how you don't change. You haven't changed so far. You made a commitment to change at one point, and then you went back on that commitment. So don't do it again. Like, I will talk to Yahweh. I will ask him whatever you want me to ask him for you. But don't go back on this commitment that you're making. And so verse 30, Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. Okay, so 
idols, again, for these Egyptians, the idols, they're, they're failing for them. Right now, at this point, hope for Egypt, for Pharaoh, it's disappearing very quickly. And in the midst of disappearing hope is an opportunity to change. You know, when your idol, it fails to meet your expectations, there is an opportunity to turn to God and ask, okay, obviously my expectations have been wrong, so what should my expectations be? When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So you want to know something crazy? It would take six more horrific plagues in Egypt for Pharaoh to actually budge, to actually change in some measurable way. Okay, so what? Talked about all this stuff. So what? This morning, I want to call you to be aware of the indicators of a hard heart and their antidotes. Be aware of the indicators of a hard heart and their antidotes. And this might be in you. This might, these might be indicators for you. These might be indicators for someone else. But just be aware of the indicators of a hard heart and their antidotes. So the first indicator of a hard heart is ignoring the obvious. So, uh, so you ignore the obvious. What does this look like? It's like when the data is present uh, for Pharaoh, the data was absolutely present. When everyone else in, in the situation can see that something is true, but, but the person, there's a person who refuses to acknowledge the truth. Like it's obvious, it's clear that this is what's happening. Everybody else knows it, but this person refuses to acknowledge it. They're ignoring the obvious, and that is an indicator of a hard heart. The second indicator, illogical anger. So when you know a certain discussion uh, will set a person off, like there's a, a particular person in your mind, you know that you start talking about a particular subject matter, and you know that that person is going to get set off, even when you just want to have a civil discussion, that is illogical anger, right? And that is an indicator of a hard heart, a situation of a hard heart. The third indicator is principled obstinance. So this is when you are unwilling to change because you know to change would admit uh, would be to admit that you are wrong about a particular circumstance. This is taking a stand on a thing that that you know, okay, I can't afford to change here because I can't afford to admit, admit I was wrong about that. That is principled obstinance. And number four is inappropriate defensiveness. And this happens when the, you know, the primary focus of a conversation or an interaction becomes more about how you can protect your own reputation uh, than uh, when, when the more helpful thing actually might be to acknowledge your own shortcomings, right? So these are, these are the indicators of a hard heart. And here's the amazing thing. If hard-heartedness describes you or a person that you know, that does not have to be the end of the story. Because the crazy thing is that we worship a God who actually softens hearts. Like the prophet Ezekiel talked about it like this. He said, I'm going to take your heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. Like this is one of the amazing realities of the gospel. 
You know, I was, uh, we get to say things like I was a, uh, a hard hearted, prideful, arrogant, uh, and still can be this kind of person sometimes. And then the God of the universe sent his only son to die for me, to pay for my hard heartedness, to pray, pay for my principled obstinance so that I could be forgiven and actually have a relationship with God. And this is like, once you sink into this truth, this becomes a heart transforming truth. And so what does the, an antidote to these things look like? Antidote. So instead of or ignoring the obvious, you might actually participate in active listening. Like you might look at the people, the situations around you, and you might ask the question, okay, what is there to learn from the situation that I'm in? Like this is a good just heart posture in general. I can I listen? Can I observe? Maybe maybe I'm going to hear something that I didn't hear before. So instead of uh, seeking to ignore the obvious, I'm just going to be open to listening to whatever there is to receive. I'm going to filter it through uh, the Word of God, right? But I'm going to engage in active listening to try to understand all the spheres around me. Uh, the antidote to illogical anger is supernatural peace. So, so in the midst of a, a situation where you might encounter an idea that's going to set you off, uh, what you do is you trust the Lord in the midst of that. And you say, you know what? I don't need to get angry about this uh, because the Lord has my back in this situation. I can trust the Lord. He can give me a peace, and that will enable me to interact with, with an idea or a concept or a thought that, that I maybe was unwilling to before, but now I can have a civil conversation about it without getting riled up in my soul. Uh, antidote to principled obstinance is vulnerable flexibility. That, that because you trust the Lord, because you uh, just are, are, are moving forward with him, you have a willingness. You don't have to make a stand on particular issues because you're worried about your pride being broken down, but you are able to be vulnerable. Even if it means that certain people might think less of you, you are able to be vulnerable and flexible uh, in order to serve him more and in order to serve the people around you more. You have a vulnerable flexibility. That means that nothing is off limits. Whatever God wants to touch uh, in your life, he has permission to move and to change. Inappropriate defensiveness. The, the, the antidote to that is honest self-evaluation. So you know what? We don't have to put up walls of defense because we know that that our primary wall of defense is the blood of Jesus on the cross for us, that it is our identity defining thing. And so, so we have we can hold with an open hand the reality that we actually do have faults. And that when people come to talk to us about those things, when people even maybe come to criticize or something along those lines, we don't immediately put up defensive boundaries. But And this is instruction for all of us. This is instruction for me. But we, we take it as an opportunity to say, okay, what can I get from this? Like this person is obviously saying something that points to a growing perception amongst people. So, so what is there that I need to take from this and evaluate in myself. I don't have to be defensive. That's a sign of a hard heart. But the, the way the antidote to that is honest self-evaluation. 
And you know what? God, he works. He works through various ways, through various events. It could be a pandemic where he's breaking down idols. It could be a simple request from a friend where he's just trying to soften our hearts a little bit. It could be an idea that comes to mind that he's like he's speaking through that idea. It could be a word from scripture. It could be actually that one area that, that you know that I'm talking about when I'm preaching right now or on any Sunday morning and you don't you don't want me to be talking about that thing, but but you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in that moment. And so these are all the ways that, that the Lord, he speaks, and, and we need to approach these moments with softened hearts. So you know what? When you hear his voice, Alliance Bible Church, don't harden your heart, but approach him with a soft heart. Okay. Number two, don't play the transaction game with God. Do not play the transaction game with God. So idols, uh, idolatry. It is a very transactional process. I give something over here. I get something back over here. But Yahweh, our God, is not transactional. He is, at his core, relational. So uh, so his goal, his goal is to show this to his people. They live in the middle of these all of these nations that worship these other gods that engage in these transactions. And he is trying to show his people that in the midst of these other nations that are engaging in these transactions, I am trying to relate to you. This is actually why the second commandment even exists, the whole graven image thing. This is why God says this is off limits, because the idea is that that these uh, these people would put idols in their house and they would engage in transaction with these graven images, perform certain acts for these idols, and then these idols would protect them and bless them. I give something. I, in a way, in a sense, control my idol. Because I gave something, I now determine what that idol will give back to me. And so idols offer their blessing to you when you perform. But our God is not interested in being controlled by us. What he's interested in doing is relating to us. And so Yahweh, he offers his blessing because he loves his people, because he is merciful because he is patient, because he is kind, because he is gracious. It's not because he's being controlled by our actions, but it's because all of these things exist in his character already. What's interesting is even in the covenant with Israel, where he says, you know what, if you keep the law, or if you fail to keep the law, I will take the nation away from you. If you don't keep my statutes, I will take this nation away from you. I will take your land away from you. Like how long does he actually wait before he sends in other nations to take away the land. Like hundreds of years, you see Israel chasing after idols again and again and again, and he continually forgives. He's continually patient with them. He lets them keep the the land for a much longer time than anybody expects because he has this graciousness in his personality. And you know what? Nowhere else, nowhere else is God's love more clearly displayed for us than in the cross of Jesus. Like that's where Jesus took on himself the punishment for our sin. He made it evident that this is God's heart to us. This is where God steps in to relate to us. He made it clear God actually wants a relationship with us. So you know what? Our world, our entire world, ever since we're born, we are trained for transaction. If you put in X, you get back Y. This is just how we are. We were trained to operate. But in the cross of Jesus, God made it clear that there was nothing that we could do that could control his favor or how his favor is directed. 
but that he would offer his favor to us freely through the shed blood of Jesus so that we could enjoy relationship with him. So, you know what, God, he, he might actually be in the business of showing us that our idols stink, but, but the reason that he does that is because he wants a relationship with us. So the question is, when he shows us that our idols stink, when he actually uh, breaks them down in front of us, how are we going to respond? You know, we know how Pharaoh responded, but how will we respond? Will we see a God who cheated us on a transaction? Or will we actually see a God who is concerned about our hearts and who actually wants a relationship with us? Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray for hearts this morning. Lord, there may be people listening whose hearts have been distant from you for a long time and for a long time have approached you with a hard attitude. Who have actually held up their hands against you and said, no thanks, I'm not interested in what you have to say. Lord, for those who are in that situation this morning, I pray that, that you would soften. That you, that you would break down the heart of the person who's listening. That you would help them see that what you want is a relationship with them. Lord, that you are not like everything else in this world. You are not transactional, but you are inherently relational and that you come to be with us. Lord, I thank you for just how clearly you showed us your desire to have a relationship with us in the cross of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you conquered death to show us that you are actually powerful to forgive sin in raising Jesus from the dead. And I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit where you actually reside with us where you take up your presence with us, inside of us, that you build this relationship with us. Lord, that we don't engage in transaction with you where we try to control you, but you freely offer yourself in relationship to us. Lord, what an amazing and precious gift. Lord, so I pray for our hearts. I pray that our hearts, when we hear your voice, when we hear you doing the things that you're doing, when you engage in the processes of showing us our idols very graciously and breaking them down for us very graciously, Lord, that you would change our hearts to not be hard, but to be soft towards you and ready to make whatever move that you're prepared to call us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.